Galatians 5, 1 through 5. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand fast, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is bound to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we wait for the hope of righteousness. The text begins with a very clear and refreshing statement about what Christ's will for us is. We get bogged down too often, I think, in a quandary over what God's will for our lives is in matters like, where shall I go to school? Uh, What job shall I take? Where shall I live? Shall I marry or not? Things that really, in comparison with some commands in Scripture, are of relatively small importance to God. The great issue with God is whether we are free or not. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand fast, therefore. That's clear. If these other matters that we worry ourselves about were one-tenth as important as that, there would be something in the Bible about where you should work. But there isn't, but there is something very specific in the Bible about whether you stand free or not. And therefore, I think it's fair to say, if the scriptures are to be our guide, that what lies most heavily on God's heart is not your maneuverings on the face of the earth, but whether you stand in freedom and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. That's the will of Christ for you. And a good test of your priorities would be whether you are just as concerned to maintain your freedom that Christ has given you as you are to determine your work, your spouse, your schooling, your location after retirement. Do you exercise as much diligence in prayer and study to stand fast in freedom as you do with these other decisions? It is clear it is an unqualified command. Stand fast and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. You must concern yourself with this if you have the priorities of Scripture. For this Christ died, for this he rose, for this he sent you his Holy Spirit. There is nothing under the glory of his own name that he wills with more intensity than your freedom. Which means it has to occupy a large place in the strivings, workings, concerns of your mind. That's my message today and everything else is uh, explained. Explanation and incentive. 
We have a playtime at the Piper household after supper. Every night I'm there. Uh, for about, we eat at 5.30, and as soon as we can get done eating, it's playtime. And the boys know it, they lay claim to it, and I'm the player with the three boys who can play. It is not easy to think of a game that satisfies a 10-year-old, a 7-year-old, and a 3-year-old at one time. You've got about an hour and 15 minutes to please all three. But we've hit on something recently, especially on rainy days. Uh, Karsten reads The Tower of Geburah to the rest of us. And I sit on the floor with the blocks and build towers with little Abraham. And Benjamin's usually content to listen to Karsten because he's such a good reader. When 7 o'clock rolls around, I say, all right, Abraham, it's time to get ready for bed. Let's put the blocks away, get them in the cart. And he usually says, will you help me? Sometimes he says, would you help me, please? If he remembers. And at that point, I've got uh, two possibilities. I can say... No, I said, you pick them up and put them in the cart, and they better be done in two minutes, or there's going to be trouble. Or I can say, sure, I'll help you. Here, I'll put the red ones in, you put the blue ones in. Beat ya. (laughs) Now, his experience in those two possibilities is very different. In the first case, he is not free. He goes about his work, he obeys, and he does it begrudgingly. There's a great weight of burden on his back. He is irritated, he is discouraged. There's a big, heavy frog sitting on the bottom lip. The second situation, however, he's free. No oppressive burden is felt. In fact, obedience is fun. It becomes a joy. He doesn't sense any weight on his back, even though he works better, harder. What's the difference? The difference is daddy is on the floor helping. Daddy came down. Helped. The same work to be done, in one case slavery, in one case freedom, and the difference is daddy came down and helped. And all of a sudden became fun. And that's the message of Galatians 1 of 5, 1 to 5. And so keep that in your mind as we look at these verses. Verses 2, 3, and 4 each portray what you do if you want to stay a slave. So they are warnings what not to do. Verse 5, which is the last one we'll look at, is a positive description of the way a free person lives. So let's take the negative ones first and see what not to do, and then we'll look at verse 5 and see what freedom looks like. Verses 2 and 3. Now I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Or literally, Christ will profit you nothing. 
I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is bound to keep the whole law, or literally that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Now, first, let's clear away a misunderstanding. A person who just flopped open the Bible, hadn't read Galatians and understood this in context, might just read those five verses and say, oh, that's simple. I understand what that means. It means God hates circumcision. He loves non-circumcision. If you want to please God, don't get circumcised. If you, if you don't want to please God, get circumcised. And so that's the way you get into God's favor. You don't get circumcised, right? Wrong. Totally wrong misunderstanding of this, uh, of this passage here. What that does is take non-circumcision and make out of it exactly the same thing the Judaizers had made out of circumcision, right? The point of verses 2 and 3 is that circumcision is not wrong in itself, but it and anything else we try to do to bribe God for his favor or work our way into his blessing is bad news. And cuts us off from the profit that Jesus has to give. Circumcision just happened to be what was top on the agenda of the Judaizers who were teaching this kind of legalism in the Galatian churches. Now let's look more closely at verse 2. If you get circumcised, it says, Christ will profit you nothing. That is, if you try to use this religious act, we could substitute anything you want today. Bible reading, church attendance, speaking in tongues, uh, working for nuclear freeze, anything you want, you can substitute in there. If you do that as a means of earning Christ's profit, he will profit you nothing. The problem with the Judaizers is that they wanted to cash in on the, the profit that Christ, the great benefactor, has to give, but... The way they wanted to get these profits was by investing their moral assets with Christ so that what they received would be dividends on their investment. Paul says that if you try to earn dividends from Christ, from your own investment of circumcision or uh, dietary rules or feast days, Christ will profit you nothing. Why? I think the reason is because the spiritual and physical benefits that Christ gives to us, those are dividends paid on the investment that he made at Calvary. When the Son of God died for your sins at Calvary, the moral assets that were invested in the bank of God's glory were so infinite that the dividends that are now paid out to his people are infinite and cannot be increased. And you see what that implies that those who try to take their moral assets that they think they have, invest them with Jesus in the hope that then they will get dividends back, what are they doing? They are dishonoring Christ. They are nullifying grace. And they are 
removing the stumbling block of the cross. Those are the three things that Paul mentions in this letter that people that do that are guilty of. On the other hand, we exalt Christ. We exalt grace. We exalt the cross in all of its offense when we recognize that we don't have any assets to invest with Christ. And that when he invested himself on our behalf at Calvary, no more could be invested. No higher dividends can be paid than what are paid on the investment that Christ made at Calvary. So this verse 2 teaches us that slavery is when you reject Christ as your only benefactor and instead treat him as a banker which you intend to invest your assets with because he needs them in order to pay out dividends to his people. And if that's the way you want to relate to Jesus, Paul says, he will profit you nothing. Verse 3, I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is a, now this is literal, a debtor to do the whole law. And I think what this verse teaches is shifting the financial metaphor just a little. This verse teaches us that the mindset of slavery is the mindset of a debtor. A person who's under pressure to pay back something he has borrowed or intends to borrow. And the law here, the whole law, all the works of the law are the currency with which he's now going to make installment payments on the loan that he's been receiving or hopes to receive. The surprising point of this verse, the beautiful point of the verse, is that God does not want to deal with us as debtors who are trying to pay him back for what we've received. And the reason I say that's surprising is because there is an amazingly widespread um, view of Christian behavior in the church today, which this verse contradicts, I think. I would call it the gratitude ethic. It says something like this, God has done so much for me that I must make it my lifelong vocation to try to pay him back. Though I know, of course, that the, the, uh, loan or the gift is of infinite and cannot be uh, repaid, I will devote my life to paying him back. That's what I call the gratitude ethic, and I think it's uh, dead wrong. I think that uh, most Christians who work out of the gratitude ethic wouldn't say they're trying to earn their salvation, but when you start working for God... Because he has worked so much for you, it's very easy to begin to think of God's free gift as a loan that's got to be repaid. Or advance wages that have to be earned. So the gratitude ethic tends to put you in the position of a a debtor who's always got the mentality of having to pay back. And that's slavery. Don't, don't, none of us 
enjoys full freedom as long as you're under the burden of a mortgage or uh, payments. You, you would love to get free of all your time payments, wouldn't you? You would be more free if you weren't constantly being sent those little white things in the mail with the glass windows and you've got to send your P-I-T-I in there. You'd be freer if you weren't a debtor, always having to come up with an effort to pay back this seemingly endless loan. And in God's case, it is endless, therefore hopeless. Christ does not want you to relate to him that way. This text is written to say, quit relating to me that way. Let me give you three reasons why I think the gratitude ethic is wrong. One, true gratitude is indeed joyful indebtedness, a sense of joyful indebtedness. Yesterday, uh, we wound up the pastor's prayer and study group that has been meeting from 6.30 to 8.30 on Saturday mornings, and those guys gave me a, a gift certificate to go to uh, Four Paws with Noel. I've been to Four Paws one time when I was invited at a wedding rehearsal. So we're going to get this nice dinner. And what I felt, I tried to analyze yesterday as I was finishing this sermon, what I feel, what's going on in my heart then. And I felt a joyful indebtedness to those guys for that gift. But as soon as that sense of joyful indebtedness and uh, joy in the, in the benefit, uh, uh, what's the word? Generosity of others. As soon as that shifts over to a sense that I got to pay this back now. A free gift has been turned into a business transaction. And God does not want us to relate to him that way. Gratitude is not a feeling that we got to pay back something. Second reason why I think the gratitude ethic is wrong. It diminishes the cross of Christ. When Christ died for our sins to repair the honor of God that we had injured through our sin and rebellion, when he did that, he totally paid our debt. Your debt to God is paid by Jesus at Calvary, is totally covered. Therefore, any effort to uh, increase the deposit made by Jesus on our part is an insult to his investment. Yes, every good and perfect thing that comes to us unworthy sinners has to be paid for. Got to be paid for. And the gospel is what? It's been paid for. It's already been paid for in full. Any effort on our part to pay for it is an insult to the payment Jesus made. Therefore, we must never, ever try to relate to Jesus as a debtor with a mindset that we've got to pay back what we're receiving, no matter how thankfully. And the third reason why I think the gratitude ethic is wrong is that it focuses only on God's past work or tends to focus only on God's past work. And it tends to focus only on God's work for us rather than his work in us. It forgets that God not only did a great work once at Calvary, God is now working mightily by his spirit within. God intends to work for us, to bring us to glory. 
right on through eternity. And not only is he working for us at every step along the way, he is working in us to produce what is good and acceptable in his sight. The gratitude ethic tends to forget that we can't do anything of value unless we are grafted into the vine and have the sap flowing into us producing that. We, we might tend to say, all right, I'm going to be patient and kind and good and faithful and meek and self-controlled and I'm going to worship and in that way I'm going to pay God back for his, his wonderful gifts to me, forgetting that all those things I just listed are what? Fruits of his spirit. What the gratitude ethic forgets is that every time you make a gift to God, it is a gift from God. Your giving anything to God is a gift from God. You see how hopeless it is to, to make one teeny baby step in paying him back? You can't make one little movement towards God but what is a gift from God. And therefore, the whole mentality of payback is deadly. It's contradicting, contradictory to the teachings of this text and of many others. So, when verse 3 says, the person who gets circumcised legalistically is putting himself in the place of a debtor to God, we learn that God does not want us to be debtors who try to pay him back by using the law as currency. His will for us is that we be free, that we recognize that the whole debt has been paid. We are not slaves who are trying to work and keep ourselves out of the poorhouse. Verse 4, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by law. You have fallen away from grace. In other words, if, if you take upon yourself the yoke of slavery to the law, thinking that you will use the law to establish, establish yourself as righteous before God, you become a slave, or to use the words of the verse, your relation to Christ is nullified and you are falling away from grace. Grace is no longer a benefit to you. So what the verse teaches is that the experience of freedom is only enjoyed by people who stay in grace, depend on grace, un unified with Christ. Outside that is slavery. Inside that is freedom. The key to freedom is the power of grace and our dependence on it. So what is grace? You know the acronym that you've learned, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. That's a beautiful statement of grace. But I want to I give you another acronym. It's not as beautiful as that one, but it adds something to it that we tend to forget about grace. We tend to think of grace as a sort of laid up for us in God and in heaven, and it is producing certain things. And I want to show you that grace is God's rescuing 
and caring exertion. G-R-A-C-E. God's rescuing and caring exertion. When God works in your life, that's grace working. For example, 1 Corinthians 15.10. Paul says, I worked. I worked harder than any of those other apostles. Nevertheless, it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. So what is grace? It's the exertion of God powerfully enabling Paul to do his apostolic labor. Or another one would be Romans 5.21. As sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness unto eternal life. Now, what's the picture of grace there? He's a king. Grace is like a king who takes up residence in the life, produces righteousness, and rules us to glory. So, I want to see, I want you to see that in verse 4 of Galatians 5, when it says that uh, the key to freedom is not falling away from grace, but staying in grace. It means staying under the exertion. God's rescuing and caring exertion upon you. When God is exerting his power on you and in you, you're free. And if you fall away from that, you fall into slavery. And that brings us back to playtime at the Pipers. If you've Recognize the connection. When I say, okay, Abraham, pick up the blocks, put them in the cart, it's time to get ready for bed, there are two possibilities. I can leave him on his own, maintain my aloofness, and simply dispense the law, which is what happened at Sinai. And he will struggle under the burden of his unhappiness, to get the job done, and there will not be much happiness or joy, and he will be a slave in that sense. Or I can get off my throne and go down onto the floor and help him and turn obedience into joy. And the key to freedom is not that I beget children unto slavery, Ishmael, but that I beget children unto freedom. Isaac, remember the divine intervention of Genesis 21.1? Isaac was a child of freedom because he was born of a divine intervention. God got off his throne. God came down and helped Sarah put the blocks away. And begot a child of freedom. Now I want to close by simply pointing you to verse 5 as a description of of what what does it look like? What is freedom when we're living it out? For through the Spirit, by faith, we wait for the hope of righteousness. Now, I know that many of you are thinking, well, there is a sense in which we already have righteousness, and that is true. Romans 5.1, having been justified. Let's have peace with God. So our righteousness has been secured at Calvary, but there is a a last judgment coming at which the final verdict 
will be announced publicly, not guilty, and at which those who are in Christ will now be made ethically righteous as well as declaratively righteous. So we, we stand looking forward to the great day when we'll hear the last verdict and we will be changed into his image. But the Judaizers were waiting for that too. And the key difference is how you wait. How you wait. And that's what verse 5 is about. How you wait for the judgment day. And two phrases sum up the whole book of Galatians. First, through the Spirit. Through the Spirit. Are you waiting for the judgment day through, by, in the power of the Spirit of God? Our lives began by a work of the Spirit. It's like Isaac's. And now we are called to wait, to live in, by, through the Spirit. Galatians 2.20, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. That's the same teaching. We are free because God has gotten off of his throne and he has come down on the floor of our lives He has gotten inside of us and he is working and turning obedience into joy. And we're free, waiting for the great day in freedom by the condescending Holy Spirit. Second phrase in the verse, through the Spirit, by faith we wait, by faith. It is conceivable that little Abraham would say, I don't want your help. You can stay up on your chair. I'll do it. I'll show you what I can do. I don't need your charity. It's conceivable. We say that to God again and again. And if he said that, and he continued to live that way, I would be of no profit to him. And he may as well not be called a son anymore because he has assumed the role of a slave. He has chosen slavery and legalism. When I want him to be a son and to allow me to make life happy for him by helping him. The human side, therefore, of freedom is faith. Trusting. Delighting in God's gracious help. And that takes us back to that key verse, chapter 3, verse 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, enabling you to put blocks away with great joy, do so by works of law or by the hearing of faith? And the answer is obvious. By the hearing of faith. If we rely on God to work for us, he works for us. One final note. In verse 5 of Galatians 5, faith is not merely a past decision, is it? By faith we wait. Faith is an ongoing way of life. 
Galatians 2.20 again. The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. The currency of freedom has two sides to the coin. On the one side is written the grace of God. Powerful, exerting itself on the floor with us, helping us. And on the other side of the coin is faith. Us. So glad he's come down. Not the least interested in puffing ourselves up and saying we don't need him, but rather accepting and resting in his promise to work in us and for us. And you know what results? Next week, Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, love. The high point of the book is that everything we've been talking about, if it's real, is going to issue in love and transform your relationships. But that's next week. Today, for freedom Christ has set you free, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. The key to freedom is the sovereign grace of God coming down off his throne, playing with us and making our life of obedience a joy, and us... The other side, well, welcoming it freely, loving it, resting in it, trusting it, being like little children who love to have our Father working in us and through us.